This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. We, we have begun, um, I have the privilege tonight to launch a new series off into, of um, the seven factors of awakening, of enlightenment. I'm going to use those terms rather interchangeably. Some people have a strong preference for one or the other. I like them both. So, um, so I'll be using both terms. Um, the Pali term is bojanga, and bodhi means al- enlightenment or awake, awakening. And anga is a causative factor, so it can be understood as creating the causal conditions which make the mind conducive to enlightenment or awakening. So we're, when, the, when the seven factors of awakening are well-developed, when the quality of mind is well-developed, then it is we could say, ripe for awakening. In the Samyutta Nikaya, it says, in what sense are they called factors of, awake, of awakening? They lead to awakening. Therefore, they are called factors of awakening. That's pretty straightforward. <laughs> and so those factors include mindfulness, which will be the theme that I'll focus on tonight, and then in, this, in the, the next several weeks, we'll go through each of the factors in turn. Investigation, energy, rapture or joy, calmness or tranquility, concentration and equanimity or equipoise. These seven factors are strongly praised in the Buddhist teachings. They're given a great deal of emphasis. And I just want to uh, read a few quotes just from the suttas, just so that you have a sense of, of how important they are and the, the language and the positioning of these particular qualities of mind. And most of these are from the Samyutta Nikaya, most of these quotes. When these seven factors of enlightenment have been developed and cultivated, they lead to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. These seven factors of awakening, when developed and cultivated, lead to going beyond from the near shore to the far shore. Those who have neglected the seven factors of enlightenment have neglected the noble path leading to the complete destruction of suffering. Those who have undertaken the seven factors of enlightenment have undertaken the noble path leading to the complete destruction of suffering. These seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, are noble and emancipating. These seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, lead to utter disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. Bhikkhus develop the path and the way that leads to the destruction of craving. And what is the path and the way that leads to the destruction of craving? 
It is the seven factors of enlightenment. These seven factors of enlightenment are makers of vision, makers of knowledge, promoting the growth of wisdom, free from vexation, leading toward Nibbana. A bhikkhu who develops the a bhikkhu develops the enlightenment factor of, and then it says mindfulness, and then investigation, energy, and it goes through the list, which has as its final goal the removal of lust, the removal of hatred, the removal of delusion. It is in this way that a bhikkhu inclines toward nibbana. And finally, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and inclined towards the roof peak, so too... When one develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment, one slants, slopes, and inclines toward Nibbana. So you can get a sense that they're positioned very close to awakening, describing what leads to awakening, what are the conditions for awakening, what is is slanting toward and inclining toward this aim of awakening. These factors develop um, the d- develop. A, a, these factors express a maturity of practice. They're highlighted as the qualities that are developed through, in particular, the development of mindfulness. Where does mindfulness lead? Mindfulness leads to the development of these seven factors. And these seven factors, these qualities of mind, create the conditions where the mind is most inclined toward or ripe for awakening. But in case you're not convinced yet that the Buddha actually taught these factors for liberating the mind, there's one more discourse, one more verse I want to read. And it says, one develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. One develops the enlightenment factor of investigation. And then it's repeated again and again for each factor. But we'll just start with uh, mindfulness. One develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, which has as its final goal... The removal of lust, the removal of hatred, the removal of delusion, which has the deathless as its ground, the deathless as its destination, the deathless as its final goal, which slants, slopes, and inclines toward Nibbana. So the seven factors of awakening are cultivated not just as, okay, we're going to now practice each of the factors in turn, but they're developed in conjunction with other practices. They don't represent separate undertakings or new practices that one must learn. The seven factors of awakening describe the fundamental qualities of mind that develops through meditation practice. And the basis of that, the beginning of that, The essence of that is mindfulness. It says, again from the Samyutta Nikaya, one develops the enlightenment factor of whatever, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, accompanied by, in this case, in this discourse, the perception of a skeleton, referring to somebody who is developing 
their meditation practice by focusing on the skeleton. It's a, medit- it's a particular meditation practice. Another discourse says exactly the same thing. One develops the enlightenment factors accompanied by the corpse meditations. Okay, so that's not what we tend to teach here. But they're valid meditation practices in working with uh, contemplations and recollections of death and mindfulness of the body. Then it continues with other discourses that say one develops the seven factors of awakening accompanied by loving kindness, metta, accompanied by compassion, accompanied by appreciative joy, accompanied by equanimity and accompanied by mindfulness with breathing, and accompanied by various meditative perceptions that include meditations on on foulness, on death, on non-delight, on impermanence, on satisfactoriness, um, not-self, on abandonment, dispassion, cessation, which are all the kinds of qualities and conditions of mind that, that the basically the seven factors of awakening develop as the conditions of mind that develops through the Buddhist meditation practices. Pretty much all of them. I don't think I can think of any meditation practice I've learned that didn't develop the seven factors of awakening as an integral part of the practice. Why? Because of all those previous quotes, they create the conditions for awakening. But we might ask, if the seven factors of awakening incline the mind to realize Nibbana, to realize liberation, what is it that inclines the mind, what are the conditions that incline the mind to develop the seven factors of enlightenment? And there are discourses that tell us that. They identify three precursors to being a, be, to the development of even the first of the awakening factors of mindfulness. And those precursors include virtue, good friends, and careful attention. Because when we have good friends who provide us as an example and give and, and make perhaps some good suggestions to us, give us some good ideas like, hey, you doing anything on a Tuesday night? Why don't you come along to this meditation group? And we have enough virtue in our, in our lives so that when we sit down, there's some possibility that we're not going to just be totally overwhelmed with anger and remorse. And there's careful attention so that we're willing to actually bring our attention to our experience. We now have the conditions that make it possible to begin to develop mindfulness as the first awakening factor. The Pali term sati is what we translate usually as mindfulness. Some people prefer awareness. I like mindfulness. How would you define what mindfulness is? We use it a lot. Now, 40 years ago, nobody really used the term mindfulness in my social circles, but now we see it everywhere, everywhere. What is mindfulness? I'd like to just hear a few comments. 
If you had to describe in a couple of sentences what mindfulness is, what would you say? Paying attention, yes. Okay, paying attention. What else? What else would you say? Paying attention without judgment, yes. What else? Present moment awareness, yes. Yes. And I think this is generally what we think of as mindfulness. And I think it's, it's pointing to a quality of awareness, of being able to observe the experience that is occurring. Rather than make up stories about it, or have a lot of deluded perceptions about it, or avoid it, or distract ourselves from it, or live in a fantasy of the past or the future. We actually open to experience and to know what is actually happening in the present moment. But interesting, there's a lot of things about mindfulness that don't have to be even limited to the present moment. For example, um, there's an aspect of mindfulness that includes memory. So there's also something about mindfulness that includes wisdom. So some discernment. Not the judging of negativity, of aversion, but the discernment can be present in mindfulness. Looking just in the dictionary, it describes the English dictionary. It takes taking the, mindful, the word mindfulness rather than the poly term. It says being attentive and careful, having or keeping in mind. Aware or awareness, being heedful. The example is be mindful of the danger. You know, be attentive, be on the alert, one could say. But sati in the Pali uh, in the Pali language and in the Buddhist tradition is a very special kind of attention. It's not just a kind of careful attention, like if you're trying a new recipe and you want to make sure that it comes out right and you you know measure everything just right and take care with the temperature and actually stir it really nicely instead of doing ten things at once in the kitchen. No, it's it's something that it's actually the quality that leads to the development of all the factors that lead to awakening. So we use the term to imply a special quality where there's a wholehearted engagement with the encounter with experience so that we are observing what's happening, we're knowing what's happening, but we're knowing it in a way that the mind is free from its entangle from the habitual entanglements of desire and aversion. We see the present moment just as it is, rather than how we wish it was, so that the experience of what's happening now is not distorted by our likes and our dislikes, by our personal preferences. So we could say that sati describes the capacity that we have to observe. But it's largely observing in the present moment. That's what is here to observe. But it's not only observing the sensation or observing the sight or observing that hearing is happening. We're also observing the quality of the mind that is knowing it. We're observing our encounter with it. 
And as we engage with our experiences more mindfully, we might find that we have a more balanced attention in the present moment. The more mindful we are, the more attentive and balanced we are in the present moment, the more likely it is that we'll be able to remember what was happening if we needed to recall it later. The Buddhist um, psychological system of Abhidhamma describes each mental factor along with their characteristic manifestate and characteristic function and manifestation. The characteristic that is dis- that is attached to this term sati is that the ma- it's the ca- mindfulness has sati has the characteristic of sinking deeply into the object, non-superficiality, clear knowing. It manifests as the direct confrontation with the object. And one of the examples that Sayada Upandita used to use is that he says it's like you experience what you're knowing face to face. Like if you're walking down the street and somebody else is coming toward you on the street and you look directly at them. You see them just like that. You don't grab a hold of them and hug them and do all kinds of things, go for a dance and go out for coffee. You know, there's experiences pass by all the time. They're constantly changing, arising and passing. But we see them face to face. We don't turn away. We're not lost in something else. We have that, that, that encounter of knowing the experiences, the present states that are occurring. And the function of sati is to be able to apply and sustain our attention on our object, on whatever it is we're engaged with, and to keep the object, to keep what we're knowing in view long enough to what's, what it, the language is to penetrate it. Now, this penetrative quality does not imply a force. Some people read that and they think it's really forceful, like you've got to force your mindfulness on experience and you've got to get all grim and everything and intense about it. But we also find similes in the suttas that describe um, being mindful with the simile, for example, of the cowherd who when... Um, when unwholesome, when when the when the crops are the the example is when the crops are thick, the cowherd has to really poke and prod the cows because and keep them away from the crops, otherwise they'll be fined. So the cowherd is really out there, like right with those cows, um, poking and prodding them. Um, but when the crops have been taken in and there's no danger of of that the cows aren't going to cause any trouble, then the cowherd sits under the shade of a tree and is only mindful that the cows are there. So it describes a very broad view, a relaxed way of observing experience, which sounds like it's in direct confrontation with this more penetrative language. And so we'll find different languages used in different suttas or in later tradition um, 
to try to describe what the, these qualities are, but I don't experience these two so these two descript these two this language of penetrative, under penetrative view or sitting under the shade of the tree as being contradictory, because that cowherd must stay awake and must know that the cows are there. And there will be times when one looks very deeply and very strongly. And there'll be other times when one is much more spacious and relaxed. But one knows what is in one's view. We'll sometimes um, use mindfulness as a term, rather casually, oh, um, please close the door mindfully. Well, really, that's saying, please close the door quietly. Or, um, uh, please be mindful of what you say, which basically means, you know, don't, don't speak wrongly, you know, bring, bring attention, bring um, your, your, your practice, bring your awareness to what you say. It's not really just like saying, hang out and observe your mind speaking. It's, it's, it's engaged in that experience. These kinds of references imply uh, uh, some of the, the qualities that combine with mindfulness, in particular wisdom and clear comprehension. We often find compounds with satipanya, sati, mindfulness and wisdom, and sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. Mindfulness usually includes this quality of wisdom, and according to the Abhidhamma, it always, well, almost always, there are some, some rare, unusual moments where it may not include active wisdom. But basically, mindfulness and wisdom function t- together. And clear comprehension is an aspect of this. And clear comprehension, des- Sampajanya describes knowing more about the situation, knowing not just being aware that, you know, maybe that I am um, observing myself reaching for the paperclip, but I understand the purpose of reaching for the paperclip. I understand the suitability of that action. You know, it's, it's appropriate to what I'm doing. It's my paperclip. Um, one understands the range, the, what's called the domain of one's attention. So I'm attending to what I'm engaged in rather than thinking about something else or messing with somebody else's business. And the final one is the non-diluted conception of the activity, which basically means that, uh, that, that, one, that I can be aware and mindful of this without delusion around what this is, how it's used, what that action is involved is involved with. So there's, um, it's just very clear and a practical wisdom that includes the contexts of the experience. So we see not only what is being known in the moment, but also the context and causes and conditions around it. We notice not only what our attention is drawn to, but if attending to that 
is useful and good or if attending to that is only perpetuating defilements like greed and lust and anger and hate. We see our relationship to what arises moment by moment. And we include that awareness not just when we're sitting with our eyes closed, but when we're walking, when we're eating, when we're speaking, when we're keeping silence, when we're bending, when we're stretching. In all activities, mindfulness can pervade our encounter, our knowing, our observing of, of, of all experience. Bear attention, just very simple bear attention, might notice the arising of a sensation, for example. But it's clear comprehension that will understand the context, the function, and our relationship to what we perceive. So mindfulness and clear comprehension have a lot of overlap. And so it's not surprising that in the suttas, we often find both words together in a compound. Mindfulness practices should not narrow our vision to just some minute sensation or just watching the breath. Mindfulness is more than just moment-to-moment focused attention. Mindfulness is an engaged observation where we understand and see and observe processes and relationships in a way that will lead to liberating insight. Ajahn Chah, um, I'll, I'll give a quote from a book called The Still Forest Pool, which has a collection of Ajahn Chah's teachings, a Thai forest master. As you proceed with your practice, you must be willing to carefully examine every experience, every sense store. For example, Practice with a sense object such as sound. Listen. Your hearing is one thing, the sound is another. You are aware, and that is all there is to it. There is no one, nothing else. Learn to pay careful attention. Rely on nature in this way and contemplate to find the truth. When the mind does not grasp or take a vested interest, does not get caught up, things become clear. When the ear hears, observe the mind. Does it get caught up and make a story out of the sound? Is it disturbed? Can you know this, stay with it, and be aware? At times you may want to escape from the sound, but that that is not the way out. You must escape through awareness. There are three aspects of awareness or mindfulness that I want to mention. One way of understanding mindfulness is that it's that we're when we're mindful, we see clearly what is happening in the present moment without judgment, without grasping, and without aversion. When we see Without our mind moving towards and away, we'll be able to perceive what that experience is. We'll know the characteristics of the experience. We'll begin to understand how we perceive it. We'll begin to see it as changing conditioned processes that are being known. 
We'll start to understand how things work in the world. With clear seeing, with mindfulness, with understanding, there is an immediacy of attention. And that immediacy of attention affects our perception. It's as though our perception, our encounter with life feels fresh. It feels clean. It feels vivid, moment to moment. When we are more mindful with experience, our sensory encounters feel more alive. Another aspect of mindfulness is very important in the context of this series because mindfulness is the first of the awakening factors. And mindfulness serves as the basis for the development of all the awakening factors. They're lined up in a sequence that with the development of mindfulness, when we become mindful of something, there's interest now and the ability to investigate it, to want to to try to understand it. Then we apply our energy to meet that experience. And as we counter the experience, joy in meeting the truth of present experience arises. With joy, the mind becomes tranquil. With tranquility, there's concentration and equanimity develops. So there's a sequential development where each of the awakening factors builds upon the previous ones, all depending upon the presence of mindfulness. The more we intentionally cultivate these factors, the stronger our inclination towards awakening will be. So this whole development relies upon mindfulness. Another way of understanding the um, awakening factors is to see, or, or, or mindfulness in relationship to the awakening factors, is to understand the balancing factor, feature, the balancing quality of um, mindfulness. Because mindfulness balances all the other awakening factors. Because it's possible actually to have too much joy and then we get a little giddy. Too much energy, we get a little restless. Too much tranquility, we get a little dull. Too much concentration, we don't really know what's going on around us. So mindfulness functions to balance the energizing factors with the calming factors. And so the system of the seven factors of awakening is a system of continuously balancing the mind. But um, mindfulness also overcomes the hindrances. There's an interesting series of discourses where the seven factors of awakening uh, are, are said to arise when the five hindrances are absent. So we have the five hindrances of, of sensual desire, anger, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt being representing the hindrances to meditation and the defilements of the mind. When those are absent, the awakening factors take their place, one could say. The awakening factors arise. 
And so these um, these two systems of five of 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 abandoning the hindrances and cultivating the awakening factors we find repeated in multiple discourses in the Samyutta Nikaya, and we also find it as being the um, the essential teaching in the in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the fourth Satipatthana, the fourth establishment of mindfulness. Basically, it's a very simple teaching. We let go of the crap that's bug, that's just, that's blocking our progress, and we cultivate a way to liberation. You know, it's not too complicated. But we get five of these and seven of these and develop mindfulness. And mindfulness, interestingly, as soon as mindfulness arises, the hindrances fade away. Why? Because we're now developing the seven factors of awakening as soon as we've got mindfulness going. So we might be mindful of that anger had just arisen, but a few moments of mindfulness and the anger is going to fade away because we will, through the presence of mindfulness, now be investigating it. Now, bringing energy to the experience and meeting that, that the experience that we're having and at that, in a very, very quickly, we'll find that once mindfulness arises, the defilements, the hindrances, they can't last. And so they fall away and the mind continues to cultivate the awakening factors. If there's any reactivity for or against desire and aversion, mind, when mindfulness comes into the picture, it balances the mind. Even after the hindrances have ended, there still can be some imbalance in the seven factors of awakening. As I said, sometimes the concentration is too strong and the mind gets dull. Sometimes the joy is too intense, the bliss is too intense, and we get a little um, agitated from too much happiness. And so the mindfulness as an awakening factor is still functions to help balance the wholesome factors, even when there's no unwholesome factor present. So mindfulness functions as a very dynamic quality. It's not passive. It's a dynamic observing power that is both confrontive and receptive, both penetrating and allowing. There's nothing superficial about mindfulness because with mindfulness we're able to meet the experience as it's happening and settle in to know the experience deeply. With mindfulness, we bring our attention into an open, receptive, accepting, clear, and intimate experience with our own experience of body and mind. I'll end with a quote from John Kabat-Zinn, where he says, Mindfulness is about being fully awake in our lives. It is about experiencing the exquisite vividness of each moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.